It's uh, good to be here this morning. It's great to be a Christian. When we first began raising support in September 2009, one of the first places to which we came to make an appeal was I met on, on I think it was actually on, on Labor Day or, or the day following in, in the daytime with, uh, with the elders. And so the White Oak Church has been one of our supporting congregations uh, since that time in the work that we're doing in Malaysia. And it's quite obvious that we could not be there and we could not be involved in the work there without the financial support that we have. We have about 20 congregations in, in a number of different states who are a, a part of our team, who are our supporters, and, and, and we're thankful to be here today simply to shake your hand and look you in the eye and say we really appreciate the ongoing support that, that you've given to us. Sometimes individuals or families who are working in the type of work that we're doing are, are forced to spend a lot of time and put forth a lot of effort in raising new support or replacing lost support. And in that aspect, we have been really, really blessed. For the last four and a half, nearly five years, we've only lost one supporting congregation. So that's, that's just been a blessing on us. And, and we thank you for your continued support. What I'd like to do during this class time is, is just give a, a real brief notice to a couple of things that we're involved in in Malaysia and then give you an opportunity to ask questions. As I stand before brethren, I don't really know what you want to hear about. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to to ask questions about the culture, the food, whatever, the work. And then whatever time we have left, we'll look at a lesson from the Bible on evangelism. There's a song that we sometimes sing. Um... And the words of of verse number 3 go like this. Millions are groping without the gospel. The song title is Swiftly We're Turning. It may be a song with which you're familiar. But think about the words of that song. Millions are groping without the gospel. If you read a bulletin article in which the message is, Today, there are 3 billion people living in the world. We've got to get the gospel to 3 billion people. If you read an article like that in the year 2014, then you probably understand that is a very, very outdated article. If you're talking about the world's population being 3 billion people. In fact, the world's population hit 3 billion people in about 1960. From the creation of Adam and Eve until 1960, it took that period of time for the world's population to get to 3 billion. And then it took, it took that thousands of years to get to 3 billion. And then to get to another 3 billion, it only took 39 years. 1999, the world's population doubled. Today, if you want to talk about a round figure today, the world's population is somewhere around how many billion? Seven. Seven billion. And the estimate is, based on current 
populations and, and rate of growth is at about 2025, probably we should be around 8 billion. So what I'm saying is, when we sing a song that says millions are groping without the gospel, those words don't do it justice. There are billions who are groping without the gospel. And, and the God of heaven cares about every one of them. The work of evangelism is an activity that involves every person in the universe. It involves those of us who are Christians to take the message, and it involves those who are lost outside of Jesus. You know the words of Mark 16, 15. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to whom? To every creature. To every person in every village. To every person in the most populated regions of the world. The gospel is for every person. Malaysia is part of God's creation, and so we know that God cares about the people of Malaysia. About 28 million people live there. A predominant religion is Islam. Uh, among the, the Indian people, the predominant religion is Hindu. Among the Chinese people, predominant religions are Buddhism and, and Taoism, which involves ancestor worship. And then there's every type of denomination, which you know of here, about every brand of denomination is there. So, so that's the environment. This year, Malaysia has been in the international news since March the 8th. What's the reason for that? Why is Malaysia in, in the top of international news? We can't find our airplane. Uh, Donna and I flew on that same day, leaving the same airport a few hours earlier to go to Singapore. Uh, but it's incredible. Someone mentioned recently, when the mad cow disease broke out, we were able to pinpoint the exact location in California, the exact cattle barn where that started. But we can't find an airplane of that size in, in modern times. But Malaysia is of more value to the God of heaven than simply an airplane. We moved there in 2010 to work with congregations which have already been established. The work in Malaysia began sometime around 1960. There are about 20 congregations, and out of those 20 congregations, two congregations have elderships. And so there's definitely a need for, for some teaching and some work and some preparation in the realm of leadership. In the congregations there, only a handful have gospel preachers. So what that means is most of the congregations, their Bible classes and their sermons are, are done by the average brothers in the congregation. They've not been trained for the most part. They've not gone to a school, and so they're doing the best they can. And so what we're trying to do is work with congregations which already exist and help them in their teaching programs and help train them to be better teachers and to provide them with some materials, some of which you're using here in your classrooms, so they can have those materials in their classroom studies. So there are three main congregations with which we work. There's one in the community where we live, Kutukamaneng, it's a congregation of about 50 in attendance. It's been in existence for about four and a half years. It actually started one month before we arrived in Malaysia. We do have elders, and I mentioned a moment ago there are only two congregations in Malaysia with elders. In the history of the church in Malaysia, there was a congregation in, in the 1970s which had elders for a very limited period of time, and then the eldership was disbanded. And then somewhere... I'm going to say about seven years ago, the church in Klang, 
which is the largest congregation in Malaysia, they appointed two men as elders, and then the church at Kotakaming has elders. We work with the Subang Jaya Mandarin-speaking congregation, which is about 25 minutes from us. A number of the congregations in Malaysia, their midweek Bible study is not very midweek. They meet a lot of them on Friday night. And so a lot of our activities are centered around Friday, Saturday, and Sunday programs. So we spend a couple of weekends each month in the community where we live, and then we use those Sundays going to the congregation I mentioned also at Subang Jaya. And then one weekend each month we go down to the city of Johor Bahru, which is the southernmost congregation in Malaysia. We, we teach there Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And then the second weekend of each month we're on a rotating basis going different places. A number of times we're doing personal evangelism workshops. For example, when we go back at the end of July, our second weekend back will be in, in the Klang area. Uh, I'll be doing a Chinese gospel meeting Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And while we're there, on Saturday afternoon and Sunday afternoon, we'll be doing a personal evangelism workshop in English. We're allowed to be in the country only 90 days at a time. That's not because we're working with the church. That's simply because we have an American passport. Those who come there from other nations don't get 90 days. Some only get 30 days. So we don't have to have a visa in advance. We simply walk into the airport, and as we're going through immigration, when they check our passport, they put a stamp on our passport that says it's good for a visit of 90 days. And so when we leave the country, sometimes it corresponds with our time to come back to the U.S., We've made a couple of trips to Taiwan, but the majority of times we, we simply fly to Singapore, which is a flight of slightly less than one hour. And when we're in Singapore, we can be there just one day and then fly back the next day. Sometimes what we do is we arrange our time there to, to do gospel meetings. God willing, I mentioned the second weekend of each month, we're, we're kind of going different places. In September, we're planning to be in, in Singapore to do a personal evangelism workshop. And so that's the way our, our arrangements are. So our main concern is with building up congregations that already exist. Paul told Timothy, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2. So, so Timothy was blessed to have had an opportunity to spend time with the Apostle Paul. He heard the message that he presented. He had observed Paul's personal habits. He had seen Paul's character. And now Paul says to Timothy, Look, the time of my departure is at hand. The, the time for me to leave this world, it's coming soon. So he said, What you need to do, Timothy, is, is you need to take what you know and turn around and commit that unto to faithful men. The word men, there's anthropos. It's faithful men and women who, with the idea that once those faithful men and women have been taught, what are they to do in turn? They are in turn then to do what? Teach others. Now, now specifically, Paul's writing about teaching. But in principle... The principle would be the same. If, if you or I have some type of ability or, or some type of experience, maybe it's in song leading. Maybe it's in designing websites. 
Maybe it's in teaching a class. Maybe it's in teaching children. Maybe it's in comforting those who are going through hard times. Whatever abilities we might have and whatever experience we can use to benefit others, then we need to do that. And so in Malaysia, our main effort is in trying to build up the congregations which already exist. By teaching classes on how to prepare lessons, teaching classes on how to present lessons, teaching classes on personal evangelism, and then just teaching intense Bible classes where the brethren can increase their knowledge. Uh, We have a very busy schedule. There's rarely a, a time in the month that we don't have, there's rarely a day that we don't have at least one appointment, either in teaching a person that's not a Christian or in conducting a class. I'd never counted before, but simply out of curiosity, I went back and, and counted the first four months of this year from January through April, and we averaged over 12 lessons per week. And a number of those lessons are hour and a half to two hour classes. A, a lot of our lessons are classes we conduct at the Kotakamaning building. We have classes every Monday. We have classes on alternate Tuesdays. We teach a class every Wednesday night. We teach a class every Friday night. We have a class at least two or three Saturdays a month. We average two classes on Sunday. So that's where a lot of our attention is. And we're thankful for the opportunities and the blessings that we have to do that. Uh, Depending on the prospect, the the lost person, depending on the group of people, uh, some of our classes are done in English. Some of our lessons are done in Chinese. It just depends on which language is the best for the people that are involved. And some of the lessons are bilingual, which means there are two languages going. Every month when we go to Jehor Baru, which I mentioned the fourth weekend of the month, we have a class on Friday from 8 to 9.30 at night. We have a class on Saturday from 4 to 6. We have private lessons during the day. And then we have four lessons on Sunday in, in JB. Now, some of you may have read in our newsletter, uh, there's a new law that was passed in the southern state of Johor. Malaysia is divided into states like the U.S. And in some affairs, just like here, the state can make its own decision. Well, the state government of Johor decided that beginning... January this year, if it was a government office or government activity, rather than having Saturday and Sunday as their days off, their days off now are Friday and Saturday. So in in the state of Johor, the the work week on on Sunday for those working in the government or government-related activities, Sunday is a work day. This was not something that was done to target Christians. It's not any form of persecution. Friday is the day that the Muslims go to the mosque uh, just after lunch. And so I believe it was probably with that in mind that they made this change. Now, how does that affect the church? Well, there's no congregation in Malaysia that we know of 
that has multiple assemblies on Sunday. They have Bible class and worship, but there's no congregation that comes together at one time of the day and then takes a break and then comes back for another assembly. Well, in, in Jehor, one of the leading brothers there, Li Chitim, he's a, a lawyer for the government, so he works on Sunday. At least one or two others are teachers. And so the public schools, they go to school on Sunday. And that involves some of the brethren there. Some of their primary age kids go to school in the morning, and some go in the afternoon. Long story short, because of this situation that was thrust upon them, the church there is now meeting in the morning as well as in the evening. So now by the time we finish up Sunday night, uh, we finish up about 9.15 because we don't start until 7.30. Uh, by the time we finish up and, and we drive home, we get home about 1 o'clock in the morning. But anyway, the lessons we do there are totally bilingual, which means I speak in one language and then translate from Chinese into English back and forth. So, so those are the way that we do our lessons. I, I don't know what questions you might have. Feel free to ask about the work, about the people, about the religion, about the air, air pollution. I don't know anything that's going on in your mind. And so ask me some questions. If you have them, this is your last chance. Uh, because God willing, God willing, when we go back to Malaysia and arrive back there the last day of July, we'll have eight more months of work there in the capacity which we're now working. We went there with a five-year plan. And the plan would end at the end of December this year. And we've simply extended that by a few months. And so, Lord willing, we'll be back in the U.S. sometime around the 1st of April next year. I have to be back by the fourth week because I have a gospel meeting at the White Oak Congregation in, in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Okay, brother, you had a question. A what? The answer is no. Uh, for, for the most part, the Malaysian government and the Muslims that are there are of the moderate variety. Now, in eastern Malaysia, Malaysia is divided into western Malaysia, which is a long peninsula, and eastern Malaysia, which is an island. And that island, uh, we share that island with Indonesia and Borneo. Uh, there would be more non-moderates in the, in the eastern part of the country, but there's no form of persecution that, that I'm aware of going on in Malaysia uh, in that regard. Now, I did not mention, we do have people that are coming to Malaysia for, for work purposes, for study purposes, and some have come there from other countries uh, seeking refugee status in Myanmar. If you were run up through Malaysia, through the peninsula into Thailand, you would run up into Myanmar. Some of you may have been there back when it was called Burma. 
in, in that part of, of Southeast Asia, there is religious persecution. In particular, those who are from the Chin tribe in, in Myanmar have had a lot of persecution. But I don't think it's from the Muslims. I would say it's more from Buddhists. Uh, but back to your question, no, there's, there's not any type of persecution of which we are aware at this time. Uh, it's interesting. The only time where there's been any kind of back and forth in recent times between Muslims and, and non-Muslims happened, I, it was either the, the day I arrived or the day after I arrived in Malaysia in, in January, four and a half years ago. In the eastern part of Malaysia, a number of the non-Malay people, the, the, the main ethnic group in Malaysia are the Malays, are about two-thirds of the people. Well, their language is, is Bahasa Malay. And in the eastern part of Malaysia, many of the non-Malay people still speak Bahasa Malay as their main language. And so those who are of a denominational sort were using the word Allah when they translated God. Well, some of the Muslims did not like that, and so they began sending these, what are they called? Some kind of cocktails? Molotov, what's it, what are they called? Okay, I know it's not tequila, okay? <laughs> but, but some kind of bombs, homemade bombs. They were doing those to church buildings. And, and a couple of times during that, that span, some of the mosques also got some of those. But that's the only thing at all close to, you know, that type of thing going on since we've been here. Yes, another question. Yes, Yes. Uh, we do have that. Uh, it's, for the most part, uh, for the most part, it's, it's isolated to uh, a limited number of congregations, three or four main ones that they're out there by themselves. And, and part of the influence is they have preachers who came to the U.S. and were trained at Abilene Christian University. Or else they've had children who have come to Abilene Christian and their, their sympathy along those lines. Another area of doctrinal challenge is in the area of some are teaching that the final coming of Jesus that the resurrection of the dead and the day of judgment has already happened. That it happened in the first century in A.D. 70. The fancy word for that is called realized eschatology. That is, it's already happened. Sometimes it's called full preterism. You probably heard it described as the A.D. 70 doctrine. So, so that's making some inroads. And so, yeah, we have, we have those challenges to face. It's just a reality. Who else has a question? Yeah. Yes. Yes, sir. Here he is. I'm the interpreter. Yes. Yes, that's right. Now, now sometimes, uh, if we had, for example. If there was a brother that came 
a Chinese brother who didn't speak English or an English-speaking person who didn't speak Chinese, and we wanted them to address the assembly or teach a class, we would have someone translate for them. But in my case, I do my own translation. And my approach is different from a lot of brothers who have done it. My, my, I've learned through the years, I begin with Chinese and go from Chinese back into English. Now, first response might be to say, we'll start with your natural. Here's why I do that. If I can say it in Chinese, I can say it in English. <laughs> so I start with my weakest language and go the other direction. Because, you know, sometimes when, when you're going in English, some cultural words or expressions may come into your mind that maybe there's not something that fits in, in Chinese. So that's what I do. And Brother Joe, I, I'm going to give you a sample of what that would be like, okay? If you were sitting in assembly like that. Now, this is, I'm not trying to impress anybody, but here's what the people have to sit through. Now, for those that, that only know one language, is okay. But for those who know two languages, you know, it, it's a challenge to, you know, because you, you're sitting there and you already heard it one time. Uh, so I try to keep it short and precise as much as possible because, you know, the old mind plays tricks on you. You don't always remember what you said. So it would go something like this. Uh, Please take your Bible and turn to John chapter 8. Here in verse 32, we read that Jesus said, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And what is the truth? Chapter 17, verse 17. So it'd go back and forth like that. Okay? Go back and forth like that. But we do that again for the purpose of making sure that, that people can understand. And even when we do that, that there still may be a, a couple of isolated people. Uh, we've, in some of the congregations, we have some people from overseas who are maids who have come there and they've obeyed the gospel. Well, maybe someone may take quietly sitting over here, take what I've said in English or Chinese and translate that into their Indonesian language or something like that. It's not done out loud, but it's done in a, in a, in a private way like that. It's interesting in Malaysia, about 20 to 25% of the people are Chinese, and a number of them are fluent in Chinese, but they can't read or write. Like in the congregation where, where we are more, more than any other, both of the elders are Chinese men. They speak Chinese in conversation, but they can't read or write Chinese, and so they, they don't know Bible language, so they can't conduct a Bible study with someone who needs 100% Chinese. And so before services begin at some of the congregation, you might have a few people over here speaking in Cantonese, which is the language of Hong Kong. And you might have some over here speaking in, in Hawkin, which is the language of Fujian province in China. You might have some over here speaking English and some over here speaking Mandarin Chinese. Well, once the services begin, depending on the congregation, it'll all be in English or it'll all be in Chinese. So they, they look and seek out what's their best common language. I, I saw a couple of questions. I didn't see, but I saw a couple of hands. I'm sorry. Well, 
Well, well, the key in the translation is, I say it in Chinese and now I'm speaking in English. The key is when I'm speaking in English, I'm not thinking about what I'm saying in English. I'm thinking about how do I go back and connect to what I said in Chinese. So it's, uh, I've done it uh, for a long time and so it's, uh, I don't get stressed out about it. Now years ago when we were in Taiwan and we had a, we'd have an American preacher come over and do some meetings, I really got stressed out about it in those days. But not now. Anybody else have a question you'd like to ask? Yes? Uh, we do see a, a, a widespread, uh, I would describe in, in their culture, uh, I would say the majority of the, of the brethren are middle class. Some are upper middle, some are lower class. Uh, there, there's a wide variety. But in general, the economy of Malaysia is, is doing well. And people who work hard are able to do well. Now, I don't want to give you a false impression. Not everyone is like this. And it has nothing to do with being appointed an elder. It's not one of the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1. But there are four elders in Malaysia. And every one of them drives either a Mercedes or a BMW. Now, I'm just saying that they're, they're men who have done well in what they're doing. They're not the only ones who have those type of vehicles, and some don't have vehicles. Uh, but, it, but in general, the brethren are, are doing okay. Yeah, Brother Jim. Yes, they are, and uh, they, they work well, and uh, they do well in that sense. Very industrious. It's what you say in the, in the Chinese culture in Malaysia. Uh, big focus for, for most Chinese families is kids, we want our son to be a lawyer or doctor. Uh, we don't want our daughters to be homemakers. So, so career. And you know, there's nothing wrong with having a career, nothing wrong with you know, whatever amount of money a person wants to make. It's a matter of priorities. It's a matter of priorities. And so... You know, a lot of Christian parents, they don't want their sons being gospel preachers. Uh, you know, maybe for that reason. Yeah, brother. No. I mean, it's anything that you might face here, we would face that there. Our work is done among two main groups of people among the Chinese, and among the Indians. And then we're also blessed in the community where we live, in that general area, to have contact with people from a lot of different nations. We've had a number of converts from Myanmar. We've had a couple of converts from from China, uh, from the Philippines. We've had a couple from Indonesia, from South Korea. So we're really blessed in that sense. But in terms of, of things to deal with, among the Chinese people... The traditional religions are Buddhism and 
and Taoism or ancestor worship. So those are the things, uh, you would experience those in Taiwan. In Malaysia, people who are not committed to any religion, they maybe don't call themselves uh, atheists, maybe they don't call themselves agnostics, they use the, the term free thinker. Now, that doesn't mean they're, they're going to accept anything you say, but it means basically they're not tied in into any religious philosophy or any religious thought. Among the denominational people, you, you would find every form of denominational teaching there that you do here. My approach to evangelism is different from, from some people. In general, I'm just saying in general, and it depends on for each Bible study, do you study for an hour or do you study for two hours? But in general, we find in Malaysia, if there's going to be a convert in, in the way Don and I teach, it's going to be somewhere between 10 and 20 Bible studies. I'm a firm believer in you have to lay the foundation. And so we start by talking about the existence of God, why we believe the Bible is the Word of God, why we believe Jesus is the Son of God, and then we go from there. We do that even with denominational people. Let me share an experience I had with you. It wasn't in Malaysia. It was in Taiwan about 30 years ago. There was a university student there with whom we made contact, and she began to study the Bible with us. And at that point in her life, she was actually older. She was about 23, and she'd been in a denomination for eight years. She was a regular attender of a denomination for eight years. And just in our first setting, we were talking about belief in God, belief in the Bible, and I brought up the question, belief in Jesus as the Son of God. She said, well, of course. I said, well, tell me why. Why do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? And she thought, and she thought, and she thought, and she said, I don't know. Well, guess where we dug in? We started right there. I think we're making an inappropriate assumption if we're dealing with denominational people And we just assume that because they're church-related, that they're keyed into what the Bible says about the the deity of Jesus and the inspiration of the Scriptures. And so that's where we start and go from there. Anybody else have a question? Well, uh, Brother Joe, some of the congregations... I'd have to count the number. I'm going to just guess that more than 50% of the congregations, their assemblies and their classes are in English. And then we have other congregations that do it in Chinese. And for the most part, the Chinese services will be at the same time in another part of the building, or they'll be in the same place at a later time in the day. So it's not... Not that often where the Chinese and the English speaking are together. We do have Bibles in English. We do have Bibles in Chinese. We have not many that are, that are bilingual. We have some books, though, that are bilingual. It's interesting. Malaysia is a Muslim country, but you can go into a religious bookstores, something similar to caves, or books a million, or you can go into religious bookstores and buy Bibles. You can buy Bibles in English. You can buy Bibles in Chinese. I don't think you can buy Bibles in Bahasa Malay because they don't want it in the language for their people to read it. Who else? Bibles are readily available. 
Well, you've given me three minutes for a lesson on evangelism. We can do this, Brother Steve. Look at your Bible in Acts 18. We'll do this. Before you get to Acts 18, let's take a stop off in Acts 16. You know, if you're flying, you've got an international flight and you want to make a stop over one day in one place overnight, you've got to pay extra money. We're stopping over in Acts 16. It doesn't cost any extra. Okay? Look at your Bible in Acts 16. Here's an interesting statement. During Paul's second preaching journey, remember in chapter 15 they had that discussion in Jerusalem about keeping the law of Moses and, and, and observing circumcision. Well, now in chapter 16, and verse 4, the Bible says, And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. Now look at verse 5. And so were the churches, and by that, the congregations. And so were the churches established or strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. There were challenges that the early church faced. I just mentioned chapter 15. There were some individuals who were causing trouble by trying to force people to keep physical circumcision. The church faced challenges. But what you read in verse 5 of chapter 16, that's good news. If I were to ask you this morning, and I am, what kind of growth do you and I read about in verse 5 of chapter 16? What kind of growth? You say church growth. Okay, church growth in what sense? Spiritually and numerically. Sometimes in, in, in our time, sometimes when we use the language church growth, we're referring only to one type. We're referring to numerical growth. Numerical growth is part of it. But we learn from verse 5 and a number of other instances in Acts in the New Testament the growth of the church has to put a spotlight on internal growth. Because if we're not strong within, we can bring people into the Lord's body by teaching the gospel. But if we're not strong within, we'll lose them or we'll crumble. In fact, when you study through the book of Acts, I think we can add another dimension of church growth. There's internal church growth. The brethren were strengthened. There's numerical growth in that the individual congregations, they were growing by having more people added to the Lord. And then there's a third sense in which the church grew that you see in the book of Acts, and that is the church grew geographically, meaning new congregations were established. And we need to think about that in the 21st century. There are places in the world where there's no congregation. There are places in the world where people have to travel a couple of hours in order to, to assemble. We've got a, a, a Malaysian couple living in Abu Dhabi in the Mideast. And they travel a couple of hours to, to get to services. And so there's a need for us to, to think in those terms. In Malaysia in the last five years, three new congregations have been established. Totally by the local brethren not because of any fuss or any problems. They simply saw, here's a geographic region that needs a congregation. And what they did, for the most part, in a couple of instances, they did it the right way. They started with brethren who were already faithful, and some of them worked together to start that way. Instead of starting with totally nobody, for example, in Kota Kamenin, there were six families that started that congregation. 
about four and a half years ago. Our time is up. I really appreciate your attention. appreciate your interest. And uh, hopefully next week you can get back to your regular studies.